Real Life Real Crime is a true crime podcast brought to you weekly by Woody Overton, Jim Rathman, and executive producer Toby Tomplay. sexual nature it should be for people that are 18 years or older heed my warning people Jim and I do not get the facts of these cases off of the internet or from some television show the facts we're retelling you were presented to us by the victims of the crimes or the perpetrators who committed the crimes against the victims my description of the crime scenes are what I saw with my own two eyes if you're going to get offended, please turn this podcast off now. Thank you. Hello, everybody. I'm Woody Overton, your host of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast. And I'm coming to you solo today due to the restrictions on the coronavirus. Uh, Jim Raffman's in Florida working the Don Lewis case, and I'm working from home. I'm going to bring you an old, old school story, if you will, uh, by myself. So let's get started. The name of today's episode is going to be I Shot That Man. In 2006, October 2006, I was working as a detective with the Livingston Parish Sheriff's Office. And we had received a tip or or call from the Tangipahoa Parish Sheriff's Office that there was going to be a large gang fight uh, in our parish uh, outside of the town of Springfield in the McCarroll Road area. Uh, now, bear with me as I uh, get you oriented in what I'm talking about. Tangipahoa Parish, first of all, Louisiana uses parishes, not counties. And we're one of the only states uh, in the United States that has that. We're under the Napoleonic Code of Law. So when I, y'all hear me say parish, that just means counties, like for everybody that's outside of Louisiana. But Tanchpo Parish um, connects to Livingston Parish on the east side of Livingston Parish. On Also on the east side of Livingston Parish, there's, I mean, it's just really rural, y'all. There's two small towns on the extreme side of, that, of the parish, and that is the town of Albany and the town of Springfield. Now, in 2006... The population Livingston Parish was approximately 90% Caucasians, and the uh, African Americans generally had what we call their own settlements or or areas where, I guess, neighborhoods, but they weren't neighborhoods, uh, really rural areas, like outside of Albany, it's North Cafe Line Road, which runs for miles and miles and miles, and you have homes and trailers mixed in with cow pastures, right? And and so there's no rhyme or reason to it. It's not like big subdivisions in big cities or whatever. Uh, Springfield, Highway 22 runs from Tangipo Parish into Livingston Parish. And when you cross the bridge, you're literally in the town of Springfield and you're on, on that Highway 22. But the first road to the right, is is the McCarroll Road, McCarroll. And if you take the right there, it's it's a little two-lane blacktop road that meanders back into the woods, it looks like, when you're going. And it's kind of sparsely populated. 
uh, maybe a trailer here and a house there, but that's where all the African-Americans live. And as you go down McCarroll Road, it becomes a little more populated, but still there's no no streets, y'all. There's no subdivisions or anything like that. You just have like this this road doesn't even have a divider line down. That's how small it is. And there's no street lights. Um, and like I said, there's no no street signs or anything. It's that road, right? And you go down McCarroll Road, and um, we they had the one area we called the Horseshoe, which is simply just like a, a U-section of the road, which was kind of more populated with trailers and stuff where, where the residents lived. That area was also... Uh, a high crime area for narcotics. And in back when I worked streets or the streets, as they say down there, the, um, they called me the wolf because they said I was always down there hunting somebody. And, you know, once I got caught up on regular calls at nighttime, I, I was, I mean, I, I would go down there and find probable calls to stop vehicles, uh, for whatever the reason may be whatever law they violated and to initiate contact with the people that are coming in and out for, uh, narcotic search reasons. And so that that's what I did. But so I, I knew all the, a lot of the residents down there is what I'm trying to say. And I never messed anybody over. They, you know, back then I could be out in the middle of the street fighting a bad guy that's coming through getting dope. And the, and the, the people who live there would come out and help me. You know, I mean, I had to arrest a lot of people and arrest a lot of the same dope dealers over and over again, but I, I had their respect because I always treated them fairly. And that's going to play into the story in a little bit. But what, evidently what happened, um, some of the Springfield, if you can call it that, the McCarroll Road crew got into a fight in the town of Ponchatoula, Louisiana, which is on Highway 22. And it's the first major town you come to if you're headed east from Springfield, okay? And it's probably 10 miles from Springfield, but they got in a fight over there, and, and evidently the Springfield crew whipped the shit out of the the Ponchatoula guys, right? Because now they're getting a posse up, and they're going to come back and have retaliation on the Springfield guys. Now, when I came up, y'all, certainly— I was from a small town and we had beasts with other towns and stuff like that. And we would go do these kind of fights. And generally it was one or two people were going to be the ones to do the main fight and everybody else would just watch. Right. And it wasn't that big of a deal. Uh, but when we fought, it was over with, I mean, hell one time I got knocked out by a guy uh, um, and it, we became really good friends in the, in the years to come. Right. Especially after high school. So, but but and we always had guns. I mean, I always had a gun in my vehicle because I was going hunting before school or after school. And that's just the way it was. But nobody ever brought a damn gun to a fight, right? So I mean, you just handle your business, and if you get, if you won, great, and it was over with. If you didn't win, then you got your ass whipped. You took your lick and you and you moved on. But not the case in two thousand six. So on Wednesday, October the eighteenth. We, the sheriff's office had been put on high alert and they agreed along with the Tangipo Parish Sheriff's Office and the, and the Springfield Town Police to heavily patrol the McCarroll Road area uh, um, because this fight was supposed to go down. They had a good intelligence of it. And in fact, twice on October the 18th during the daylight hours, deputies were able to identify a large group of males from Ponchatoula coming in there to start a fight and they broke it up and ran them off. And, and yeah, everybody was on high alert, if you will, but it didn't happen until about nine 30 that night. Okay. And on McCarroll road, a, a, the crew from Ponchatoula rolled in like 50 or 60 people. And now think about this, y'all. When I tell you this road is is narrow, uh, if there's an if there's another car coming, you pretty much got to get over on the shoulder. And it's pretty steep ditches there. The uh, it's it's not like it's just it's not a developed area. I mean, it's it's just rural, and and the the ditches were deep. You literally would have to jump across them. But so you got all these vehicles rolling down this dark country road into the settlement for the fight. 
as soon as they they got in the area, residents started calling. Now, the one thing I can say about the settlement areas is everybody knew what was going on, all right? If you came down that road and you didn't live down there, they knew it instantly. And, and of course, a lot of it was uh, people coming to buy crack and stuff like that, but uh, it's different when you roll in with like 20 cars and are off in Ponchatoula and everybody bails out to fight. Then all the Springfield guys come out in the street to fight. Well, I told you we were on high alert and two of our uniformed deputies pulled up on the scene almost immediately and get out. They light up the area with their spotlights and it's a mob. It's a damn mob and they start fighting. They don't care. They, they, they light it up with the spotlights, turn the, the, the strobe lights on. Hey, the cops are on the scene. They get out of their cars and the fight is raging and they don't care. They're still fighting. And the um, it's not like an honorable type of type of fighting when it's a, a mass mob like that where it's two guys standing there duking it out. I'm talking about where the crowd's running behind, you know, there'd be 10 people fighting in the middle and somebody runs up from the back and sucker punches somebody and it runs off. And it's just mass confusion. There's no rhyme or reason to it or whatever. But so the deputies are out and they are actively trying to put hands on people. Uh, and but what do you do? Shit, there's two of you. And of course they called for backup and everybody was responding. But it's a long ways down there, y'all. And then, you know, the fight's raging underneath the reflection of the red, blue, and white strobe lights that are on the top of the police cars. And just when you think it can't get any crazier, you hear. And literally, there was a gunshot that went off not even 10 feet from the two deputies. And let me tell you this. I've, I've been shot at. I've been in, in crowds when guns have gone off like that. And there is nothing that will clear a crowd quicker than a little gunfire. That's what I always say. And I've been there and I've seen it. It's, it you know, those flash mob things or whatever they call them where people go in the mall and everybody on social media agrees to to freeze at a certain moment. You know, it looks like everything's frozen in time, but that's exactly what happens when gunfire goes off in a crowd like that for about two nanoseconds, everybody freezes because there's no mistaking the sound of a firearm going off in that tight of confined space with that many people, everybody freezes and then it takes their brain two nanoseconds to register, like, oh, fuck, that gunfire, right? Then the pandemonium really kicks off. Everybody's running, screaming, hollering, and trying to get away from the sound where where the gunshot came from. But you can't just go running your vehicle. It's not like they're on the interstate. I mean, all these vehicles are stacked up. It's a traffic jam. It's a human body jam because of the narrow roads. So people are jumping ditches, hitting the woods, um, except for Desmond Gayton, who was in the fight. Desmond Gayton, that's G-A-T-E-N, y'all, was there with his brother, Patrick, and with a, another brother of his that was 14 years of age, a juvenile. And they were fighting on the Ponchatoula side, okay? But I told you it was a mass mob. Everybody's running around, and the gunshot goes off. The only one who didn't run for cover was Desmond Gayton. He was shot once in the back. He actually ran towards the sheriff's deputies' units, and he collapsed to the ground, uh, bleeding to death from a gunshot wound to his back. Fell right in front of the cop car. And uh, his brother, Patrick, ran over to him. And once he saw he was shot, and he actually held him in his arms until he died. And, it, and Patrick said uh, you know, he he was holding him when, when Desmond took his last breath. So what happens then? Well, the deputies are going to scream out on the radio, shots fired, shots fired. 
and they're going to 1033 the net, which means they're going to hold the radio, the police band radios for emergency traffic only, which means the guys on the scene. Now everybody's responding. Okay. The, the, the Albany town units responding. Springfield police are responding. Louisiana state police are responding. Every sheriff's deputy that was on duty that wasn't actively on a call east and west side of the parish is responding because the call goes out, shots fired, uh, one one person down, you know, large mob, 50 to 60 people, et cetera, right? So everybody's responding. Well, I'm at home. I mean, like I told you, it's like 930 or so at night, and my pager goes off. And, yes, that's back in the day when we had pagers. The pager goes off. It said uh, 1019, 1018, McCarroll Road shooting uh, one person down. Well, what that means, y'all, the, the 1019 means go to. Uh, oh, that's cop code. Go to 1018 means as fast as you can. And of course the, uh, the rest is self-explanatory. Now I was a long ways away. I lived way up at the time in the Northwest part of the parish. And so I jumped in my mark and I'm hauling ass, uh, as fast as I can or all the way across the parish. And I have my radio tuned to the station or the TAC is what they call it. They have different bands like TAC one was for the West side of the parish. TAC two is for the uh, East side of the parish. So as a split up uh, for law enforcement, so all the deputies aren't talking on top of each other, but I'm listening as I'm driving and I'm hearing other units responding on the scene. When you get out on it, you go, Hey, uh, you know, my number was 201. When I got there, I was called in dispatch uh, at 201s on scene, right? Then what they do is they log out who gets there at what time, et cetera. But anyway, before I got there, uh, almost everybody else had made it. Uh, um, all the other detectives, uh, special response team members, SWAT. Um, I mean, it was a mass. You couldn't, I couldn't get within a quarter of a mile of the actual shooting scene just because of the amount of police cars blocking the road by this time. And so I get there uh, and I walk up to the scene. Now you talk about a shit show. Okay. The, the, the one thing you want to do as a detective, especially on a homicide case is secure your scene. And that's, you know, where you see it in the TV shows and they rope the area off, et cetera. Well, Imagine trying to rope this off, all right? Part of your crime scene is going to be the two deputies' cars that were there when the gunshot was fired. Plus, it's just, you know, cars everywhere, people everywhere. The, the, by this time, the um, uh, Gaden family has been the, the, the ones that lived called Ponchatoula and, and, and their family members are coming. And I mean, it's a real shit show. So the first thing you have to do is crowd control and establish your crime scene. Well, easier said than done, but I get there I meet with the detectives and, and we're like, okay, you know, they had some crime scene tape up. We try to spread it out a little bit further and then we divided and conquered. Now I saw, uh, the deceased on the ground. He, he, he was definitely dead at the time. And so we start to photograph the scene. We call the Louisiana State Police Crime Lab out. It's going to take them an hour and a half or so to get there. Let them physically process the scene and do their own photographs, et cetera. And in the meantime, we decided who was going to try to spread out into the crowd and talk to the neighbors, et cetera, and see what happened and try to develop a suspect. And that's what we did. So as I told you in the, in the you can, lack of a better term, say hood, uh, uh, down in the settlement or the hood like that, we knew everybody. And, and from over the years of dealing with them. And like I said, you treat them with respect, you get the respect back. And there was, always seems to be one family that's kind of the most respected 
if you will. Uh, um, they've been living there the longest since they were kids. And I'm not going to use their names, y'all, but the, uh, there was a matriarch of this family who lived there. And uh, she had grown kids now who were out on the scene and grandkids. And uh, so we went to her to talk to her because, as they say, the streets talk, and that's S-C-R-E-E-T-S. And so, you know, so I'm going to go talk, you know, to her and see what she's heard, right? And so I went to her trailer, which was like probably 200 yards from where, where the victim was on the ground and the, and the fight was taking place. And I went there and I said, hey, I said, you know, need some help. Uh, obviously, uh, the guy's dead and we need to know what the hell happened. You know, what have you heard? And she, she cooperated. And she said, I can tell you that two of my kids that I was familiar with, I had arrested both of them on prior occasions for different charges. One was a male, one was female, adults. She said they saw what happened. And so we were able to uh, get them independent from one another. And they both told us that a 14-year-old that, Juvenile, actually, the deceased younger brother is the one that shot him in the back. They said his other brother, who was there on the scene, uh, a street named J Rock, it, it um, was actually the one that was holding the firearm when, when the big fight broke out. And he turned around and gave the pistol to his 14 year old younger brother. Uh, uh, and that the younger brother is the one who shot Desmond Gaten in the back. Now, Jeremy Gaten at 20, was 20 years old. He's the one who allegedly, he's the one that they told us and gave sworn statements that he turned around and handed the pistol to the 14-year-old who shot their other brother, Desmond. Now, remember, they had another brother, Gaten brother that was there also, Patrick, and he's the one who held Desmond until he died. So, I mean, shot him. 10 feet from, from, from where the deputies were trying to break up the fight. So that's what, what we had to roll with, y'all. And, and Stan Carpenter was our chief of detectives at the time, and he said, look, we can get warrants for him uh, and get him arrested. So based off of those statements. Now, we didn't have anything else. that Nobody else was talking. Nobody else was saying who did it. Uh, that we didn't just talk to, to them, the, to that family. We tried to talk to everybody. And, of course, a big thing that down there is that they don't tell on each other most of the time. So we were, I mean, hitting dead ends, no pun intended, trying to interview other witnesses, et cetera. But it all came back to the 14-year-old shot his brother in the back. And we don't believe it. Certainly don't believe it was intentional. So what do you do? You, you, you know, the mob scene is going on. Uh, they getting the crowd to disperse as the time goes by. Now, y'all, it's late. I'm, I'm talking about a span of five and six hours. We're on the scene getting these statements, beating the bushes, if you will, trying to find other people to talk to, et cetera. But, again, the only information we got was that the 14-year-old who was from Ponchatoula, as was the victim, um, that his brother, J-Rock, handed him the gun and he shot him. So there you go. With, um, I don't know how that family knew who who these guys were, but they knew them. They were able to call them by name, so that gave some validity to what they were saying. And that, and the fact that we didn't have anything—I mean, from anybody else, right? I mean, that's that's it. So the uh, I don't know who went and got the warrants made and signed up, but that was done. And this is over the period of the whole night, y'all. And the the warrants were uh, ended up being served on the 14-year-old and J-Rock. Um, J-Rock was booked into Livingston Parish Jail on second-degree murder, illegal carrying of a firearm, inciting a riot, and, um, or principal to second-degree murder for, for bringing the firearm there, illegal carrying of a firearm, inciting a riot, and obstruction of public passage. The obstruction of public passage is for simply being on the road. Uh, uh, there is a law. If you have your feet on the street, you can be arrested for. So he gets booked for that. The 14-year-old gets booked into 
the Florida Parish's Juvenile Detention Center. And yeah, I told y'all about this in, in another story. I don't remember which one, but I was a supervisor there until like 1998. Uh, I was a sergeant there. The And it's not a hug-a-thug program. It is a badass place for badass kids. And, and all the kids that are in there are in there for murder, rape, armed robbery, you know, serious, serious offenses. And but the Florida parishes uh, encompasses Livingston Parish, Saint Helena Parish, Tangipahoa Parish, Saint Tammany Parish, and Washington Parish. And what those parishes do is each one of them allocates a certain percentage of their tax, uh, their tax money to to foot their part of running Florida Parish Juvenile Detention Center. Shit, it was a prison. I mean, it's a maximum security. Each each one of them had a, a, their own cell with steel doors, not bars, et cetera. You didn't want to go there, I'm telling you. It, it, it wasn't a great place. So the 14-year-old's locked up there on the charge of second-degree murder and illegal carrying of a firearm um, and, I think, obstruction of public passage. Okay, so, you know, the Desmond, the victim... Uh, the next day he goes to the autopsy. He died from the gunshot wound to his back and then went into his vital organs. And, of course, he bled out on the scene. And time marches on, right? So now now what do you have? You have this beef that rolled over from an initial fight that started in Ponchatoula. Somebody got their ass whipped and got their feelings hurt. And then so they want to bring it to Livingston Parish. And it comes over there, and some dickhead has to bring a gun to a fist fight and somebody died, right? And I, I don't get that. Uh, but anyway, now think about the emotions. If they were jacked up before because somebody got their ass whipped in their hometown you know, in a fist fight, and then they come over to Livingston Parish and one of them gets killed, and then two of them get locked up, now the the retaliation is certain. Okay, they and not only were the streets talking, uh, I mean, it, it was it was imminent that the Tangipoa guys, uh, both from the city of Hammond and Ponchatoula, were coming back, and there was going to be hell to pay, and it was going to be gunfire because one of their guys was dead. So what happened was Sheriff Graves called the meeting, and this this is like early, right after we got done working, uh, Gaden's. Uh, homicide scene. He calls in Jason R., the uh, SWAT team commander, and the shift supervisors, everybody, and says, this is the deal. I want everybody that's off-duty to be down there, and I want the SWAT team to be down there, and I want them to know. If they come through there and they're not from there, you handle your business. And I'm going to tell you what they did over the course of the next two days. They made 42 felony arrests in, in that area. Uh, basically, the, if you were coming down there for whatever reason and you weren't from there, your ass was going to jail. 42 good felony arrests. And I, I could read the list to you, y'all. It's all you know, possession of firearms, um, uh, selling of, you know, narcotics and I mean all good charges good good felony charges there were some who resisted the cops and and ran and followed them and stuff like that and they got their issue 42 felony arrests and I think another 17 misdemeanor arrests which means that you know then maybe they had some weed on them or whatever but or crack pipe or um whatever everybody went to jail uh, hell or jail and it wasn't gonna be hell so, I mean, that's, that's the way you do it. And, and when I worked in the Department of Corrections in 91, the, uh, the DCI, Dixon Correctional Institute, they had a, a crawfish plant this time of the year that they ran 24 hours a day. And the inmates had to work in 12-hour shifts. And that, at the, in that 12-hour shift, they had to peel, I think it was like 14 pounds of just crawfish tail meat. They had to weigh that on the scale that they appealed that, and that's a hell of a lot of crawfish, y'all. And if they didn't meet that goal, they got locked up and went to the hole, right? And I remember I was working in the rec room. It was right at uh, shift change, and it was work call. 
you know, called them out to go to work for the crawfish plant, and they bucked up. The big whole big mob of them were like, fuck it, we're not going. And so I, had to, I called it in. Warden came down and said, this is how you handle this. He said, you go up to one of them, and you give them a direct verbal order to go to work, and if they say no, you place them in handcuffs. We send them to the hole. We do that until we get the mob to move, and that's, that's what happened. After about the fifth one, we put them in handcuffs and hauled them off. Everybody else was like, fuck it, we're going to peel crawfish, right? So same thing, concept, uh, Willie Graves was doing. He didn't play, y'all. You you flood the area by force. You let them know, hey, you come down here behind this bullshit or anything else, you, your ass is going to jail. We don't care. And it, we'll put you in jail, and district attorney can decide what, what to do with the charges later on, whether to let you in or out but the point was to do good law enforcement and to prevent a mass shooting. Matter of fact, that the very next night was Springfield, the town of homecoming parade, and it got canceled. And And some say it was due to the weather, but I think it was due to that. It was too easy of a target for uh, a retaliation with gunfire, especially too hard to defend. So. It goes on the um, and I was down there. I, I partook in part of that, and, and but I got a tip from a, another confidential informant. It would be the proper term, but a, another person that from down in the horseshoe area that I was cool with, and he and he called me. And said Wolf, he said you need to go talk to this guy, and and his name was Darian Armstrong. That that he wanted me to go talk to us. Why did I need to go talk to him? He said, because y'all got the wrong dude in jail on murder charge. You, you arrested the wrong people. I said, what do you mean? He said, he said, man, I'm just telling you, Darian ain't been acting right that night. Uh, since then, he's been crying. He won't come out of his house. And, and he said, I just think that, I think he's the one that shot him. He said, I'm not sure, Wolf, but I'm pretty sure, you know, uh, he said, I'm just pretty sure you need to talk to him. So I sent somebody down there to pick him up, uh, um, and he wasn't there or whatever, so I rode down. And now, that Darren the, uh, Armstrong, I didn't know him. He wasn't a frequent flyer. Uh, his his family was a good family. I knew his daddy, but not from being in trouble, just from, from the um, the neighborhood. You know, I, I would go down there back in the day. And if they were having a, a bonfire on the side of the road in the wintertime, I'd get out and hang out with them and, and, and shoot the breeze with them and stuff, right? So, but this, this, Darian Armstrong was 19 years old. He's a college student, never been in trouble a day in his life. So I ended up down there, riding down there and, and um, uh, knocking on the door and, and talked to his dad and said, hey, uh, you know, there's Darian here. And, and he was like, what's up? And I said, I just need to talk to him. And he came out, and, and I talked to him. I said, Darren, do you mind coming to my office and sitting with me and having a chat? And he was like, no, sir, I don't. And then very polite, uh, very well-spoken, and we rode up to my office. And I get him in there, and then the whole time I'm just kind of chatting with him, trying to, you know, break the ice with him. And, and he's, I can read it on him, y'all. I mean, there's something there. But he's he's trying to keep up the appearance that, everything straight but so I was just chatting but he never really asked why we were, we're what we're going to talk about I said I just you know need to talk to you you know and for him not to ask back that was a big red flag right so we get up to the office and uh I had a little private office uh, and I do where I did polygraphs also and I got him in there and I said hey Darren we look before we start talking I want to advise you your Miranda rights. I said, you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. You have the right to an attorney prior to and during question. If you can't afford one, a court appointment for you. I said, but don't say anything. I said, I just want you to understand your rights. And I said, I said, Darren, I've been, I've been doing this for so long, man. If I go anywhere and before I ask anybody a question, I can go to Burger King and ask them uh, what's on sale. And before they respond, I advise them their rights because I never know what they're going to say. I said, I'm certainly not accusing you of anything or anything like that. I just want you to understand your rights. I said, do you understand your rights? He said, yes, sir. And I said, cool. Now, the uh, I got a form there. Everything I just told you, this is just a formality. And I slid the Livingston Parish Sheriff's Office Miranda rights form. Uh, 
had everything I just read. I said, just read there for me and initial each line for me, if you don't mind. And when you get to the bottom part, it says consent to questioning. It says, I've made no threats or promises uh, to you to get you to talk. And you understand you have the right to stop talking anytime or answering questions anytime, et cetera, et cetera. It's a standard formula. And what I'm trying to do, I'm trying to get him past Miranda. I don't want him lawyering up before I get a chance to talk to him. Because the more time I spend with him, the more I know this is just about to get real. And so he was like, he kind of paused and, and read and whatever. And, you know, then he went ahead and signed it, right? But what's he going to do? He's already rode up to my office with me. And I told him, he signed it. And I said, cool, man. You know, I said, uh, I, what I'm here about is what happened the other night on, on Wednesday night. And, he, and he's kind of looking at me. And I said, look, the, uh, the, the shooting. And he said, yes, sir. And, and he, said, he said, I wasn't there. I wasn't there. I said, all right, cool. And then I said, I accept that. And can you tell me what you know about it? You know, and he was like, well, I don't know too much. I know, I know a guy from Ponchatoula got shot, you know, and I know he got killed. And, and I said, all right. And at this time, y'all, I'm starting to set him up, you know, and I'm um, not threatening him or, or challenging him or cutting off his, his denials or anything like that. Cause what I want to do is get him to take a polygraph. And so we talk about it. I let him get his denials in, et cetera. And, um, and then I told him, I said, well, you know what? I said, I believe you. And I said, but the easiest way we can resolve the situation is you let me give you a polygraph. I said, you know what a polygraph is? He said, yes, sir. I said, you said, let me give you a polygraph. You pass it. No problem. I'm bringing you back home and we're straight. And, and, and everybody, you know, nobody will come can say shit about you anymore. You know what I mean? I, they don't know that the wolf was on your side and you be, you're good. And he kind of had his hand on his head on his hand and was looking at me. I said, I mean, I said, will you take the polygraph? I said, look, if you, if you could pass it, take it. If you can't pass it, don't take it with me. Cause you're not going to cheat me and you're not going to beat me. Yeah. I said, it's totally up to you. Austin. Whatever you want to do. And he said, okay, I'll take it. So I had him sign a consent to polygraph form. And then I really started my work, y'all. Now, the polygraph is a long process, especially when done correctly. It's basically has three parts. The pre-test interview, the actual test itself, and then the post-test interview or interrogation, whichever it's going to be. Now, in the pre-test interview, you are, you are doing nothing but trying to get this person's trust, right? And, and trying to break down whatever, just, you know, put the human face on you, make that bond, make that connection. It's really an art form, it really is. And so I took my time with him. You know, no sense of rushing, right? You know, I'm only going to get the chance of this once. And um, so in the pre-test interview, you go over the the Miranda rights and the and the consent part, which I already did, and uh, then you go over a bunch of medical questions, and that's for me to determine whether or not they're mentally and physically able to take the test, to complete the test uh, satisfactorily. And we get past that, and then you know during that you're asking about family history and then whatever, and I ask what he likes to do, and I find out he he reads every night. He's a uh, and I'm like, hey, I read every night too, and I do. Uh, um, he's in college, and and he, I think he wants to be a journalist. Uh, um, and so we're we're talking about all this stuff. I'm taking his mind off off that that night while I'm going through it, right? But we're making that bond. And I said, you know what? He was always yes sir, yes sir. And I was like, you know what? I said it's it's obviously your daddy raised you right. I said I said I tell everybody yes sir or yes ma'am or no, sir. No, ma'am. I said, I just, that's just manners. He said, yes, sir. That's the way my daddy raised me. I said, well, uh, it's the way I raised my kids. It's just totally y'all, you know, trying to find a common ground to work with him. Um, and then the, the next part of the pretest interview is where you develop the questions for the test. Now the relevant questions, which are important here, relevant questions for this were, did you shoot that man? And and I tell him, I said, the, we have to make up these questions. I said, so, um, what we're talking about, 
Wednesday night around 9.30 on McCarroll Road. A guy got shot, and he died. And he said, yes, sir. And I said, uh, so you told me you weren't even there. He said, no, sir, I wasn't. I said, all right. So I said, did you shoot that man? I said, I don't care if you've been shooting guys every day for the rest of your entire life. And when I ask you that question, I'm only talking about the Gaden victim uh, who died that night on McCarroll Road. He said, I understand. And I said, so did you shoot that man? He said, no, sir, I did not. I said, okay. I said, the next question I'm going to ask you, it's real simple. Did you shoot that man that night? And by that night, I mean Wednesday night on McCarroll Road when the guy died right next to the police car. I said, I don't care about any other night in your entire life. And I said, did you shoot that man that night? Basically, it's a a continuation of the first question. Did you shoot that man? No. Did you shoot that man that night? And that night clearly defined as Wednesday, October 18th, around 9.30 p.m. on McCarroll Road. He said, no, I did not. So then you go into the, the, you explain how the polygraph works. You have to put in some other questions like, are you now sitting down and whatever, some uh, comparison questions and all that. But the, t- the, the polygraph itself, the test is really short. It only takes a couple of minutes. It's 25 seconds between each question. And I think I may have had maybe five or six questions on this test. And so you ask a question, he answers, and there's 25 seconds. And then you ask the next question, they answer, and it's 25 seconds, and the test is complete. But you do the test at least two times under Louisiana law for it to be valid, but generally you do it three or more. And so the reason for that is as the test goes along, they're going to get more or less nervous depending on whether or not they're telling the truth. Right. So the, the and the, you had the blood pressure cuff on their arm and it would be a little tight. So you let that artery rest for a minute. So you, you ask the questions once and you stop and take a couple minute break and I tell them, don't, don't talk. I said, you can move around if you need to or whatever, scratch itch. Um, don't ask me anything, just sit there and, and, and be still. And I'm going to you know, let your arm rest for a minute and then we're going to do it again. Well, meanwhile, I'm going in and I'm adjusting my instrument to his body's physiology, uh, whatever he's doing, balancing it out again. And then we do it the second time and then we do it the third time. Well, guess what? Well, let me back up for a second. Even before I asked the main test questions, I did what? what I call a practice or an acquaintance test in which I have him lie to me on one out of eight questions. I don't know which question it is he's chosen to lie about at the end of that test. Now I attach him to the instrument and I I give him eight questions. I said, pick one of these. Don't tell me which one it is. Write it down with the opposite hand that you normally write with fold it up and where I can't see it. Let me know when I, you know, can turn back around. He does it. And I go on the test. I ask him, did you pick question one? And I have to say no. I have to say no to every question, one through eight, including no to the, the question that he picked. And when he says no to the question he picked, what's he doing? He's lying. And I did that test, uh, and I got his number right. I think he lied about question number three. And so at the end, that's called setting their psychological set, right? So when I'm, he's attached to the instrument, he knows the test about the murder is coming, but I and he just lied to me about something that didn't make a damn bit of difference in the world. He's not going to get in trouble for it. At the end of the test, I tell him immediately, I say, um, you, you pick question number three. He's like, his eyes go wide. He's like, holy shit. And he starts sweating, right? And he's like, holy shit. And I tell him, I said, look, man, it's, it, I, I proved it to you that, that I can get it right on the polygraph. I said, so if your, your body responds every time you lie your physiology actually there's no lie detector it's just an instrument that takes a picture of what's going on inside of your body and uh in times of stress and i said if if i can get you on that little bitty lie what's going to look like if you lie to me about murdering this guy and then that's called setting the psychological set and then i immediately go into the main test i ask a question are you now sitting down yes um the second question is not scored. It's it's called a sacrifice uh, relevant. And I said, um, regarding the murder of that guy on McCarroll Road, do you intend to answer each question truthfully? And I asked that question, and I say murder because it helps take some of the emotion out of him hearing the following questions. And he says, yes. 
And then I ask them uh, a comparison question. Then I ask them the first relevant, which is, did you shoot that man? And he says, no. And my chart blows up. I'm talking about the, the, the polygraph measures three areas. It measures uh, the, your intercostals and your abdominal muscles. That's the tubes you see across your chest. It measures your skin sweat. They used to call it galvanic skin response. Now they call it electrodermal activity. And it measures your heart rate uh, or any different amount of blood flow into to your artery. His shit went off the page. And so I knew, I tell him, I'm not scoring the test as it goes along. I'm just keeping everything straight, making sure you're not trying to cheat, et cetera. Don't pay any attention to me. Well, I am scoring as it goes along. I'm doing the math in my head, but if anybody could have seen this guy had a serious problem when I asked him, did you shoot that man? Blew it up. When I got to the question, Second relevant question, did you shoot that man that night? Blew it up. I'm talking about his responses were so strong on my charts that I actually had to bring them back down before to, to a baseline before I could ask the next question. So we did that the first time, stop, uh, give him a break. I'm, I'm actually sitting there with my poker face on, acting like nothing's wrong. Do it the second time, he feels it worse, okay? And stop, take the break, poker face on, would do it the third time. There's no way I'm not running the third chart on this one because it's just too perfect of a failure. And he blows it up. And we get done. I unattach him from the instrument. And the um, generally, I send people out of the room and say, I need time to score it, et cetera. But I didn't do it with him, right? And, and we got done, and, and he's sitting there. But when, it, when I took the, the finger plates off, <laughs> he had his arms up on the polygraph chair took his finger plates off. He had pools of sweat underneath his hand, literally, I mean, like a puddle. The, the, he was so jacked up emotionally. So I got done and I said, listen, um, you know, there's no doubt in my mind, 1,000% that you shot that man, Darian, that, that, that you're not being truthful with me when I asked you those two relevant questions. Did you shoot that man? Did you shoot that man that night? He's tried, then he tried to say, no, no. And I said, no, 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 no. I said, just stop, dude. I said, I said, I like you. And I said, you know, you're, you're, you're a nice young man. You're very intelligent. You're very well-spoken. Your parents have raised you well. I said, there's no way. I'm not going to sit here and let you tell me that you didn't shoot that man. Right. I said, here's the deal. I said, if I did, yeah, I said, do you know what a Polaroid camera is? And he said, yes, sir. I said, the old ones where you, push the button and it spits the picture out and you have to wave it around for a second, you know, for the picture to develop. And he said, yes, sir. I said, if I gave you a Polaroid camera right now and I said, Darian, take a picture of me and you take the picture of me and it, and it snaps out and you holding the picture in your hand, you waving around and, and the picture comes clear. And there I am sitting here in the room. You just took the picture and you handed that picture to me. And I looked at it and I said, uh, uh-uh, that's not me. And it, I said, that would be just as stupid as, as you trying to lie to me and tell me that you didn't shoot that man. I said, I don't believe you're a stone cold killer and you've never been in trouble before, not even a misdemeanor arrest. You've never been arrested in your entire life. And, and I said, so you've got to put the human face on you. You got to tell me what the fuck happened. I said, because this is serious. I said, that boy's dead. He's never coming back. And, and I said, now, I don't believe you did it intentionally. But if you continue to deny it or if you want to sit there and lie to me and say that you didn't do it, then I got no other choice to believe you're some type of stone-cold killer. I said, and I don't believe that about you. And, and he stopped. And he, the whole time I've been talking to him, he, just, he was sliding down, literally sliding down. And see, he didn't realize he was just slumping. It was the feet, right? And I knew I had his ass. And he stopped and he started crying. And I moved in close to him. I put my hand on his leg and I put my arm around him. I say, man, we're all human beings. You know, I said, you fucked up. And, and but you got to tell me about it you know, or you're a monster. And, and don't tell me anything at all. And he cried and, and then, and, you know, starts sobbing. And I've got my arm on him. I say, hey, man, help me help you. That's how we're going to get through this. I will walk you through this process. It doesn't have to be as bad. I said, that dude ain't coming back. He's dead or in shit. 
I said, but I can help get you through the process. And he stopped and he took a deep breath and he, he looked up at me and my face was right by his face. He looked up at me and he said, Mr. Woody. I said, yeah, Darren. He said, I shot that man. Before I could say anything, he said, I shot that man on McCarroll Road Wednesday night. And I'm like, I know you did. And, and I'm inside, I'm going, yeah, motherfucker, I got you now, right? And so, the, um, but I'm like, all right, man, all right, cool. And, and we could work with that. You know, I said, but you've got to tell me what happened. Now, y'all, I'm audio and video recording everything uh, through the polygraph anyway, right? So I didn't have to stop for a recorder and all that bullshit. And I said, tell me what happened. I said, you, you, you lied to me. Obviously, in the beginning, I understand that. You're in self-preservation. Now you got to tell me the whole truth, dude, and, and make it like a movie. Paint it for me step by step. And he told me, he said, they were coming to fight. And uh, he said, I'm, I'm not a fighter. Yeah. And he said, when I went, he said, I brought a pistol. And he said, I, I went to the fight. And the fight broke out, and people were running around and hitting people. And, and he said, I took the pistol out, and then he said, I shot it. And he said, and I hit that dude. And he said, I said, well, what did you do then? He said, I turned around, and I hauled ass. I ran. And my next question, logically, is what did you do with the gun? He said, I threw it in the cane thicket off the horseshoe. And y'all, cane thicket uh, is down there. It, it's kind of swampy in, in the low-lying areas. They have bamboo growth that'll that'll sprout up, and they're real thick. Um, and that's what he's talking about. He threw it in the bamboo when he said cane thicket. I knew what he meant. And in the bamboo section of the woods, he said. And I went home, and he said, I, "I've been so sick about it since." And he said, and, and "I was praying that he wasn't dead, and I heard he was dead." And, and I said, I know, brother, I got you, I got you. And I said, it's going to be all right. And I said, um, you know, I said, you made, you're a human being, you made a mistake. I said, but, you know, we got to get that pistol. And he kind of looked at me and, and I said, yeah, man, think about it. I said, think about one of the kids from the neighborhood goes walking to town or whatever, and they find that pistol, what if they accidentally shoot themselves? I said, then you got two dead bodies on your hand. He said, and he shook his head, yeah. And by this time, it's like, three o'clock in the morning. So, and, uh, uh, Brad Truel, I think was my partner at the time. And I called him and I called Stan and I said, look, we got the wrong guys in jail. Y'all on, on, I said, this dude just confessed to the murder the other night. And, um, so I got Brad and I can't remember who else went, came and met me at the courthouse at my office. And, and I put, Darren in handcuffs, I placed him under arrest and um, I told him, I said, we got to go down there. You got to show me where you threw the gun. And we did. We went down there. He cooperated fully, uh, got him out in, in handcuffs and shackles and about the area of the cane thicket or the bamboo thicket where he said he threw the weapon and, and uh, Brad Truel found it and we secured it. And uh, I took him in and I booked him on second degree murder because we always started out with the highest charge and basically it really was second second degree murder i mean he didn't say he accidentally fired a gun he said he shot that motherfucker uh, uh but reason why i'll never know you know hats off to the kid for when his parents and from being raised correctly and, and fessing up to it when his back's against the wall and uh I don't know how many years he got. The, I know it never went to trial because I never got subpoenaed on it. And I would imagine, y'all, that it probably gave him 20 or 30 years. But, um, the, the second degree murder is life in prison uh, at hard labor, like the hard labor I told y'all about, the crawfish plant. That's fucking hard labor, right? And, and he probably, I, I can't see him giving me less than 20 or 30 years because he killed that young man. Uh, um, and I'm sure his family was adamant about it. Now, the Tangipo Parish and Livingston Parish both have the same district attorney and the same judges. So I'm, I'm sure they gave him pretty sentence. I guess I could go look it up. But anyway, that's it. And I remember distinctly now the, the uh, J-Rock and the 14-year-old that we 
during that time, uh, they dropped the, the second-degree murder charges on him, but they kept him locked up on the illegal carrying of a firearm and the obstruction of public passage and then inciting a riot. Now, let's talk, digress for a second and talk about the two adults that gave us the name uh, of the 14-year-old and said that they saw J-Rock hand that kid a pistol and that the kids did the shooting. Well, I don't know. I mean, but the, the eyewitness testimony, I'll be the first one to tell you, is the most fucked up thing that you can use. And and because generally it's because they're under such high stress, you know, if, if the person's been shot or, or raped or whatever, a lot of times they'll get it wrong it just because of high stress. Then you have the flip side of it where you've got people who have access to grind or beefs and they just fucking lie, right? And, and so I don't know why. Uh, they said what they said, that they had a beef with the Gatons. I don't, I don't know, um, but you, you can't do anything against them. You, that's why the sheriff was able to leave them locked up on the weapons charge because at that point in time, you sent it to the district attorney, and I'm sure it was dropped uh, uh, the, the, at a later date. But the longer they stayed locked up, the less chance there was for retribution, right? And And so that's how... That's how it played out, but I'm sure they were let go eventually. Um, uh, that's it. And y'all, you've got to listen to my next episode. Totally separate, major, huge crime that I'm going to tell about. You never heard this story, I promise you. It's a big one. But the deal is, it ties back into I Shot That Man. Totally different crime. Totally different, good crime. We had a great story, but it ties back into this case, and you'll never guess it in a million years. As a matter of fact, I'll give you a million dollars if you can figure it out before I release the episode. So y'all make sure to tune in and listen to the next episode. I don't know what I'm going to name it yet because I hadn't thought about it, but it ties back into this case directly, and it's going to blow your mind. But that being said, I appreciate you listening. Uh, we love and appreciate each and every one of y'all. Thank you uh, for tuning in or, or whatever you call it and, or downloading Real Life Real Crime, the podcast. Our fans are the best in the world. I uh, appreciate you sharing and liking us. And y'all know we have all the Facebook pages and, and all that stuff. Uh, our Real Life Real Crime friends, fans, and crew page, K-R-E-W-E, is like, over 18,400 members now and so if, if you're not a member of that and you like real life real crime go check it out you have to be admitted to the group we have the dream team moderators you submit your application or whatever the hell they call it and they'll get you approved no problems but it, it's all true crime in there y'all it's a lot of great stuff uh more stuff on jim raffman and i and more stuff on cases we work and just a lot of great true crime information period so check that out. Check out our other pages. Check out our YouTube channel. We've been putting up some videos. Um, uh, Jim's been going live on Thursday nights from YouTube at the, uh, live with the Hitman at 7.45 p.m. Central Standard Time. Y'all check that out. Patron members. Oh, man. Really, really appreciate you. Thank you so much, especially in these hard times, y'all. And look, if you can't be a patron member, I get it. I'm going to love you just as much. But patron members. Uh, you've already had one episode put up for you this month that Jim's first solo ever episode he did put up for y'all um, because of the quarantine. He recorded it, but I'm doing some uh, more special stuff for you this weekend. I'm going to do some more videos, but everybody out there that's listening, you know, we have put our Walker live that Jim and I did at the Livingston Parish Literacy and Technology Center. They actually, we sold it out three nights in a row in Southeastern uh, Louisiana University did the audio and the video recording for it, and we had put it up for sale right about the time that the Corona thing kicks out with the um, the shutdowns and all that. And we we had it for sale for twenty five dollars. Now we're giving it to everybody, every patron member that's vandalism tier or above. That's the tier that you subscribe to that gets you all the bonus episodes. Anyway, I think we have like ten hours of extra episodes in there now, plus some videos. Uh, that I've made and uh, 
Now, if you subscribe to Vandalism or Up, you get the Walker live video, our first live that we ever did, public live. And uh, so that's added to it. And like I said, we're going to add more stuff. And Patreon members, we need you now more than ever. And we appreciate you. And um, But y'all... I guess uh, I could just run on and on. I'm sure I'm forgetting something that I'm supposed to say as a podcaster, but I don't know. Uh, love and appreciate each and every one of y'all. And I'm Woody Overton, your host of Real Life, Real Prime, the podcast. And until next time or ever, don't let us catch you down on murder by you. Peace. Get ready. You're going to do it.